welcome to Faith Point, the podcast ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Prescott Valley with Senior Pastor Carol Eldreth. Our goal is to allow our faith to intersect with real life. So let's join Pastor Carol today as he shares with us from God's Word. Join me with we pray once again. Father, it always amazes us that you would love us so much that you would send Jesus to be our Savior. That he would suffer in such a horrific way that we might be able to be your children and spend eternity with you in a place called heaven. So, Father, this morning as we open your word, as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and lives, let us be mindful that our salvation came with a price and that we get to be here today because of your grace and your mercy in our lives. So, Father, speak to our hearts today. Speak to the heart of one who may not know Jesus as Savior. They may know all about him, but they've never come to know him in a personal way. Father, today we pray that would be the day, that this would be it, the day that they will say yes to Jesus Christ, confessing their sin, trusting him to give them a new life. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that whoever calls upon your name will be saved. Pray against Satan today who doesn't want us to hear anything about the cross, who doesn't want us to hear anything about Jesus, who doesn't want us to hear anything about your love. Pray that you have no room in this place, that you have no voice here, that the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the cross, would simply overwhelm everything that is here right now. We pray these things in Christ's most precious and holy name. And all God's people said... Amen. I want you to take your Bibles out. I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians, where we're at. We're going to be here for quite a while. And so we've, we've just begun uh, recently going through the book of 1 Corinthians, calling this uh, set of sermons that I'm doing uh, good news for the not so good. And that kind of describes at least most everybody in the world. We're either, we're either not so good or down from there. Basically, so we're gonna, we're just gonna, we're not gonna try and put our nose up in the air. We understand that we all have issues in our lives, but God's love is bigger. God's grace is greater than than our issues, and He can bring wholeness to our lives. And that's what I want you to see. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about all through this book that he wrote uh, so many years ago. And so today uh, we are looking at chapter one verses 18 through 31, the, the last third of, of, this, of this first chapter is where we're at. So I want you to follow along in your Bible, um, or up on the screen if you would like to, we're reading from the New International Version, and this is what we start reading in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, <clears throat> it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since 
in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. In verse 25, he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to, um, to... to nullify the things that are, so that one may boast before him, or so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want you to go back with me to your childhood. Now, this probably doesn't relate to many women who are in here, but probably almost every guy in here, if you're of a certain age, it will relate to you. You watch the commercials on television. They were probably black and white commercials at that time, unless you just were a lot wealthier than my family, and then maybe you had a, 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 a color TV. Barb's family had a TV that had a thing that went around a, a pinwheel. And so everything just changed colors all the time, kind of, you know, type of thing. And we just had plain black and white TVs. But you saw this, you saw this thing on TV and you thought, man, do I really want one of those. It was this electronic football game. And you remember see that. You remember seeing those things? And you have this little board, and, and, and you put the little pieces in place, and you set up your team and everything. And I really wanted one of those things. I just never got one. But my friend across the street, Steve, did get one. And that's almost as good as having it yourself. So, so you know, I just moved into their house, and there was no problem. And I thought, we're going to play this thing forever because we played all kinds of games. And, we, and, I, and you know, we, we played football out in the street. But this was cool because it's a little one. And, and, and these things were going to do what they're supposed to do. They're going to play football. So we took all this time and you set up all the pieces. And you get them all lined up. And you turn it on. And what happens? The box vi- vibrates. And it goes as soon as that happens, half of the players fall over dead. They just die right there. And then a third of them run the wrong way. Well, they don't run. They just kind of wiggle around the wrong way until they fall down. And then you go to quarterback who can't throw the ball. That's a lot of like, it's an awful lot like watching NFL football a lot of times. We still have quarterbacks that can't throw the ball, and you have people that just kind of fall over and run the wrong way. And, you know, it's like watching maybe the Cardinals or the Chargers, I don't know. But, um, 
you know, it, it did not live up to what I thought, so I just moved back home. Because it just was, was a real downer. Something that might relate to even some of the women and the men here. You've saved up and saved up and saved up for that special vacation. You got all the brochures, and you got a brochure of this fantastic exotic location, and you put down your money, and you, and you go for that vacation. And by the time you finally get home, you say, never again. <laughs> Will I do that? But we live in a world of a lot of botched promises, don't we? We get our hopes, get excited about what should happen, and so often... It's not what we've been adver- been watching the advertisements for. What we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians, and when we talk about, when we're thinking about all the things that were promised, we're talking about the wisdom of the world. The world offers and promises so many things. And if we're not careful, we buy into that. And so Paul comes along, because they had the same issues in Paul's day. They just didn't have the glitzy advertising, but they still had all the promises that were out there that they thought would make their lives so much better. And Paul says that's the wisdom of the world, but it's not the wisdom of God. And so we're going to look at these verses today, and we're going to kind of compare them, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. And for all of us, we have to make a choice which of those two we're going to follow. Everybody in the world makes that same choice. And we're going to listen to the wisdom of God. Are we just going to go along with the wisdom of the world? And so, um, so we look at that, and, and today we're continuing this series, and we start with verse 18. Verse 18 is kind of the key verse. It, it, it might well be the key verse of the whole book of 1 Corinthians, but it certainly is of, of chapter 1. And verse 18, which is your memory verse for this week, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He makes... He makes use of a little short phrase in in that verse, Paul does, that was extremely interesting. He says, for those who are being saved. Are being saved. We tend to think in terms of you are or you're not. We tend to think of in terms of one day I will be, maybe I'll get saved, maybe I'll get religion. Or I'll never get religion and I'll never be saved. But Paul says, for those who are being saved. And that makes it a process. That means that our salvation is not a one and done type of thing completely. It is a process that we all live through when we come to Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, it is not a process for those who are unsaved. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not in that are being saved mode just yet. But you're here today, and that means you can get into that mode. You can get into that, and we want you to. But for those who are here today and you know Christ as your Savior, you are in the are being saved framework of what's going on. 
There are, there are things that we need to understand about that. We need to understand what that means for us today. And, and he says that we are being saved. The Bible teaches that we are saved from our sins by God's grace. That we are justified. A way of, of remembering what justified means is if we just break it down, we can say it is just as if I never sinned. I am justified, made just as if I had never sinned. Did I sin? Yes. Do I still sin? Unfortunately, yes. But when God looks at me as a Christian, when I've said Jesus will be my Savior, my Lord, God looks at me just as if I had never sinned. Why and how can he do that? Because of the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus paid the price for our sins. And we're going to talk about that more later. But we are, in the, we are justified. That is a one-time event. That means that when you trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you are saved from that moment on for the rest of eternity. I gave my testimony a little bit last Sunday morning. I said when I was nine years old, I trusted Jesus Christ to be my Savior in Sunday school. I went home, went over the back fence, and went down the bank to the house below us. Steve lived across the street from me. Eddie lived across, right behind me in the house behind me. And that was our, fence, that was our gate. It was just crawl over the six-foot fence and go down and go in the back door. And I got down there. I couldn't wait to go see him. And then we walked around the block, went down the street, down a little bit, and, and turned right again, coming back up the hill. We got down to that middle part, uh, down at the bottom of the hill, and I was telling Eddie all about the fact of what had happened in my life as I understood it as a nine-year-old, and something occurred to me. My feet aren't touching the ground, and he's really bored. He could care less. Because he'd not been saved. He'd not been justified. His sins, he still had them, and he was still responsible for them. But we're justified. And so he talks about that. We are being saved. We were justified. That's the one and done part. And then he talks about the fact that that we will be in glory one day. One day we're going to be in heaven. And we're going to be there for eternity. Either we're going to leave this life through, our, through having our bodies just stop functioning uh, and we're going to wake up in heaven immediately or the rapture is going to take place. Jesus is going to come in the clouds and the church is going to go to be with him and we will be there forever. That's called glorification. And you know what's great besides being in heaven and Jesus and being in Jesus, uh, his, his throne room, is the fact that our old nature, that part of us that still sins, won't be there. It died. It just doesn't know it died yet. But when we go to heaven, it doesn't get to go there. That's glory. But what about that moment that you ask Jesus to be your Savior, and that moment that you go home to be in heaven... What happens at that point? At that point, you're growing. You're learning more and more about Jesus. You're learning more and more about your nature. You're learning more and more about heaven. You're learning more and more about God. You're serving. You're learning how to serve and, and, and touching people's lives. And the Bible calls that phase sanctification. That's the phase, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord already, that you're in. There's only three options for the Christian. 
you're either right now at this moment being saved, and then as soon as you are saved, you move right into the sanctification save part. And since you're both, you're all here and you all look pretty much alive, you're not in the glorification stage just yet. So, so we're in that sanctification stage, and there's a lot of growth that takes place. And, and that's what Paul is talking a lot about here in this book of 1 Corinthians, about how do we live in this stage of sanctification. And, and so he says, that's who we are. And that is what the message of the cross is all about. It is how we progress through those stages, what God is doing in our lives during those stages. And so we have the message of the cross. And so what is the message of the cross? And you can fill in some blanks here if you want to. This is the message of the cross in just kind of a, of a, of a paragraph. First of all, the message of the cross is that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. 2,000 years ago, he was crucified for our sins. That means that he died in our place. He died in my place. He died in your place. He knew your name when he went to the cross. And he said, when he said, it is finished, he said, I am finishing this for you. He said, I, he died in our place. And by his death, uh, he did what we could never do on our own. There is no way we could pay the price for our sin. There's no way even dying on a cross would have fixed our sin problem because we have a sin problem already. But Jesus came to the cross sinless and became our sin on the cross. And then he purchased the pardon and paid the price for the wrong we've done. He paid the full price for our sin. He pardoned us. That's why God can look at us as as justified, as righteous, because we have the righteousness of Jesus resting upon us. And so we have that pardon because he paid the price. And then he paid a debt, and you've probably heard this before. He paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And his disciples said, don't do it. His disciples said, you never will go to the cross. We won't let you go to the cross. We'd die for you before we'd let you be killed. And they couldn't live up to that. We can't live up to that. We can't pay the price for our own sins, but Jesus did, because we can't. And then, our right standing with God is never based on our goodness. God doesn't say, how good are you being right now? I'll decide how much I love you based on how good you are. No, he doesn't do that. He says, he says that, that our standing with him is based not on our merit, but on his mercy. And for those of you, maybe today, who have not, have not come yet to Christ, the message of the cross can become a tremendous obstacle. And I understand that. We understand that. It can be an obstacle for those who are unsaved. Why? Because the message of the cross requires 
repentance on your part. It requires surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you're not saved, and if you're not sure about it, you're going to say, why in the world would I surrender my life to somebody called Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago? Why would I do that? How could that benefit me? I am a smart, intelligent person. I have money. I have ability to earn money. I can do things. I can take care of myself. Why would I do that? And that becomes an obstacle. Because you can't be saved without placing your faith in Jesus Christ and giving him lordship of your life. That is, that is a definition of who a Christian is. Somebody who has done that. And if you've not done that, it could be a problem. And it's also an obstacle because that also requires uh, an admission of guilt and confession of our sins. And we think, I don't want to do that. I don't want to admit that I have sin. I'm not sure that I do, but even if I did, I sure wouldn't tell you about it. And I know if there's a God, I'm not telling him about it. That doesn't sound real smart. He's controlling of everything. Why would I tell him that I have a sin problem? I don't want to do that. And today we live in a culture where people tend to think that they've done no wrong. You remember, you know who Ted Turner is? Ted Turner, several years ago, uh, called Christianity religion for, lo- for losers. And when he did that, he said, I don't need anyone to die for my sins. Yes, he did. And yes, he does. Everyone needs somebody who can pay the price for their sins because nobody can pay them on their own. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much money you have and how well-known you are. Everyone has a sin problem that we can't deal with on our own. We need someone who can do that. And the only someone who can do that is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can go and to the cross for you and pay the price for your sins. And the message of sin and redemption is an obstacle to those who are outside of the faith. But guess what? That same message of the cross... That same message of the cross of sin and redemption can also be an obstacle to those who've trusted Jesus to be their Savior also as well. Say, so how can that be? How could that happen? Because we always have this tendency to listen to the message of the world, to the wisdom of the world. We like the wisdom of the world. We think one day we're going to pay the money and the little football players are going to stand up and they're going to pass the ball to each other and they're going to run around just like they're supposed to. And we know they're not, but somewhere Satan convinces us that yes, they will. And so we buy into what the world says is true and we say that what God says has to be false then even though we've been saved, even though we know Jesus is our Savior and Lord, we still have a tendency to turn on back on him to say, I don't want you to be my Lord right now. Or I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. You can be my Lord on Sundays. 
Okay, you can have another day too, but that's it. And I'm going to be Lord of my own life for the other days. You can be Lord of my life when I get a job. Well, no, no, you can't, because I may not be able to live the Christian life on my job. So I guess we'll have to find another place for you to be Lord. And so we buy into the wisdom of the world, thinking it's going to get us someplace, and it always lets us down. But it becomes an obstacle to us in that process of growth, in that process of sanctification. doesn't remove our salvation because we didn't purchase it. We don't own it. We don't hold it. God does. We are held in the hand of God who holds Jesus in his hand, who holds us in his hand. And Jesus said, who's strong enough to open the hand of God? Nobody is. So our salvation is secure, but our growth can be delayed, can be set back, can be thwarted, can be frustrated for decades. And we may end up in glorification. We may end up in glory with the smell of smoke burning on the things we could do in this life because we have nothing of value to offer God when we get to heaven. That's not God's plan. That's not the plan of Jesus. That's the wisdom of the world. The better plan is the wisdom of God. That's what we want to look at today. We want to understand the wisdom of God. We want to know the message of the cross, and we want to go from there and see what God is doing in our lives. So how do we distinguish between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom? Jesus said it this way. In John chapter 8, verse 32, in the New Standard uh, Bible, he says, you will know the truth, and what the truth will make you free. If I want to know the difference, if I want to know that I'm following the right thing, I can move out of slavery to the wisdom of the world into the freedom of the wisdom of God. He says, I can know the truth, and it will make us, it will make me free. So the Christian faith is built on on truth. It is built on truth that is, first of all, definable truth. I can turn to God's word, and I can see what real truth is. I don't have to guess at it. I'm told what it is. God showed it. He lived it out in Jesus Christ for 33 years here on earth. And so I can define what truth is. We've been singing about truth all morning long, haven't we, Pastor Bart? Uh, All those songs were about the truth of God's wisdom in our lives. And then secondly, it is defendable truth. Because it is definable and I can know what it is, then I can defend it. I can say no to Satan, and I can tell him why I'm saying no. I can say yes to Jesus, and I can tell him why I'm saying yes. I can tell my friends why I'm believing and doing the things that I'm doing. And they may think I'm crazy, but I can defend it at that point. When I was nine years old, I couldn't defend it to Eddie, but Eddie didn't care anyway, I don't think. But today I could tell him. And I hope that today he does care. And I hope that somewhere along the way he got saved. But we can defend it. And it is objectable truth. It is objective truth. Not objectable, objective truth. Objective truth. That means that, that it 
doesn't depend on me and it doesn't depend on you. We live in a world, in the world's wisdom, that says there is relative truth. Relative truth says it doesn't have to be good for anybody else but me. This is my truth. Have anybody tell you that? This is my truth. I don't care if it's your truth or not. This is my truth. And because I decided it's my truth, it's true. It doesn't matter if something couldn't be true at all. It can't be proved. It can't be, it can't be defined. Um, and objective means that it's true no matter what. doesn't matter who's saying it. It's true. It's, it's there, and it's not relative. And, and so we have in our world today, for example, last week, this past week, um, out of, out of there's seven, almost 7 billion people alive on this planet Earth right now, that means that there's probably around three and a half, wouldn't you say, billion women on the Earth? Biological women? Born women? And yet, the woman of the year was announced a biological man. They said, out of three and a half billion women that are really women, we're going to pick a guy who's crazy, who thinks he's a woman, and make him the woman of the year. That's relative truth. That's the wisdom of the world. And I, I, it's, I shudder to think how many Christians, quote-unquote Christians, would say, oh, isn't that wonderful? No, it's not. Because truth is truth. And God said he created you either a man or a woman, but nothing in between. And so we could go down the list of things that the world says is relative. You have friends, you have coworkers, you have neighbors who will tell you their relative truth, and you can come back to them and say, listen, I can define my truth, I can, I can, I can defend it, and I want you to know that it is objective. That it's not based on me and it's not based on you. This is based on who God is and how God created things. And who he says that he is. And when it comes to truth, we, we need to be hardliners. But we have to be very careful about this. What we don't do as Christians is, in our position is, is that, that we may, you know, this may, we don't say things like, this may be confusing, but just accept it anyway. God doesn't tell you to, to tell that to people. He says, let them ask their questions. Let them come. Let them study. Let them come to God's word. I'll tell them what is true. And let them discover what it is. We don't have to be afraid of their relative truth because we have God's truth. And God will hold up by himself just fine. And so we need to allow God to do that. And as believers, we need, but we do need to take a no-nonsense approach to what it is that we believe. And, and so with that in mind... I want us to look for just a few minutes here at three object, uh, obstacles rather, to truthful thinking that stand in the way sometimes of our ability to move forward in this life of sanctification that we're in. And it would also keep people from coming into that place of, of 
trusting God's wisdom and trusting Jesus to be their Savior and being justified so that one day they can be glorified even as we will be as we come to heaven. And so three obstacles to truthful thinking that we must face head on to overcome. The first obstacle is confusing popular opinion with biblical truth. And that happens all the time. Unbelievers do that, certainly, but even believers do. We look at, at, at what popular opinion is, and we don't really want to be cross-cultural. We don't want people to, to think that we don't think that they're of value, and so we just buy into their cultural standards and norms, and, and that gets us into problem. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul said, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews are God's people. They had been for thousands of years when Jesus came. And yet, when Jesus came, they stumbled over him. And they still stumble over him today, by and large. He's a stumbling block. Why is that? Because the, Jew, the Jewish people believed that the Messiah would come one day, but the Messiah was going to be this marvelous military leader, and he was going to lead them out of slavery. Because the Jewish people had spent much of their time as slaves. They, they, started, they, they found their footing as a nation in Egypt in 430 years of slavery there. And then they, they mess up, and in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is taken away into slavery and never come back. And the southern kingdom in 587 B.C. is taken away into Babylon. And from that point on, they never were free people again. They were always in slavery up through 70 A.D. And they thought... We need a Messiah. We need a king who's going to come and get us out of this slavery. They were always being enslaved. And so they thought, we like that kind of a king. And then Jesus shows up and he says, that's who I am. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah but I will prove it by going to the cross. And they thought, why would we trust somebody who's going to go to the cross to be our Messiah? We don't want that kind of a Messiah. And so they rejected him. And they still reject him today. Why did they reject him? Because they knew what the Bible had said in the Old Testament. For example, in in, in um, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, it said, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And then in the New Testament, we read in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a tree. So how could God's chosen one, the Messiah, be cursed? How could he hang on a tree? How could he be crucified? and still be the Messiah, still be the king that we needed. That became a huge obstacle. And, of course, there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that said 
that the Messiah would come and that he would be crucified, that he would go to the cross, that that very thing would happen, that he would suffer. But the prophecies were that, that, that the Jews wanted to listen to were very selective. And, and so they just overlooked uh, that even most of their scholars would overlook those verses that said this is what's going to happen to the Messiah. And, and, and if we want to build our lives on God's gospel truth, then we have to consider the entire counsel of Scripture and understand that God speaks to us, but he wants to speak to us with the wholeness of his word, not just the parts that we want to hang out with and forget everything else. Uh, and so if when you decide to pick and choose what verses you're going to le- read and understand and ignore the rest, then you can talk yourself out of believing just about anything. It's nice to have an idea that a Messiah would come and he'd be a mighty military leader. But when you read the scriptures thoroughly, not selectively, you understand that there's more to God's plan of salvation. And you have to understand the Messiah must suffer. And that's why Jesus died on the cross, because it was God's plan. And if we say, uh, if, if we're not careful, we'll be easily misled. So instead of, re, of, 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 of deciding, deciding to be, you know, um, undeterred in our, in our quest of gospel and biblical knowledge, we need to just be doubling down on that and say, God, what is it that you've promised and that you're going to do? The second obstacle is confusing campaign promises with genuine accomplishments. Confusing campaign promises with genuine accomplishments. And verse 22 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. You might want to understand, Jews demand miraculous signs. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for miraculous signs. And the problem is that they followed these so-called prophets even though they didn't deliver. Prophets came and they said, this is what Messiah is going to do. And, and that wasn't what Jesus came to do. And they still followed the prophets, the, the false prophets, and said, you know, we're just going to go along anyway. Uh, there was in A.D. 54... 54 AD, uh, a man who simply, we know him as the Egyptian, and, and he built quite a following of people around him, uh, and, and everybody thought that he was a great prophet. And he made all these promises uh, to the people, and he led a large contingent of people out into the wilderness. I mean, think wilderness of of where the Israelites were at. Think the southern part of Egypt, which is all wilderness. He led people out into the wilderness and told them um, that, that by his spoken word, the walls of Jerusalem would fall. He spoke the words, but the walls of Jerusalem didn't fall. But the people weren't deterred. His guarantee came to nothing 
It was basically a campaign promise. And out of that, many of his followers were captured and killed, and he himself went into hiding. But that's the kind of prophet many people were looking for in those days. And not just those days, in today's day as well. We're looking for that that king who is going to come and take care of everything and proof doesn't matter. Don't care about what we what God's saying about that. And when Jewish leaders asked Jesus for a sign to prove his authority, what did he say? In John and John chapter 2 verse 19, he said, "Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in 3 days." He said, "You're looking for proof Put me on a cross and kill me. But watch out, because three days later, I'll rise again. I won't stay dead. That's proof. That's proof that changes everything. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple. He was talking about his own body, himself, his own death, and his own resurrection. And if you want truth about the Christian faith, then here it is. This is the proof that you need. Jesus came to this world, and he lived a sinless life. He never sinned, and, and he died a criminal's death on a cruel Roman cross. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and is alive still today and forevermore. That's provable. That's objective. That is definable. Look at his followers. The Egyptians' followers died or went into slavery. Jesus' followers, following his resurrection, before that they had been cowards before. They'd been afraid. When Jesus was arrested, they fled from him. Uh, by and large. And they're hiding in fear from the Roman authorities, afraid that they might be next. But after the encounter with a risen Savior, after Jesus was risen from the dead, something changed. They experienced radical transformation in their lives, even to the point that they were willing to face prison and torture and death for their beliefs in Jesus Christ. How do you explain that kind of transformation? That's objective truth. That's what we saw happening. That's the wisdom of God. That's the message of the cross. And that's what happens when you see a dead man come back to life. When you know him after his death and he's alive again. Truth has a way of transforming our lives to those who embrace it. So rather than than basing our ideas on truth and shallow appearances and surface-level indicators, look for real evidence in people's lives. Look around you in this room at people's lives who've been changed radically because of a risen Savior. And the third obstacle that stands in the way of so many people coming to Christ is is confusing entertainment with real-life wisdom. Confusing entertainment with real-life wisdom. 
polished presentation is not proof that a message is true. Most people think it is. If you can polish it up enough and say it well enough, then it must be true. But just because you can, you know, polish a pig, it doesn't make it not a pig. Put lipstick on it and it's still a pig. There are many who, if they're honest, would have to admit that that's what they believe. As in, say it in a convincing way and I'll believe it. Just say it in a convincing way and I will. There's no difference in the Greek culture of the New Testament times as it is today. Um, last week I mentioned these sophists who were running around in, in, in Greece during Paul's day. They were philosophers. And they would go down to the marketplace and they would try to outdo each other in, in putting on lipstick on the pig. They got real entertaining. And they would draw big crowds. And, and the bigger it was, the more everybody got excited about these philosophers who were just spouting the world's wisdom. The get you no place. And so Paul came along and he looked at that and he said, yeah, remember, that's not me. If you're looking for lipstick on this pig, it's not going to be there. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you not the world's wisdom. I'll tell you God's wisdom. I will tell you the message of the cross. And he just stayed on that topic. And and so um, William Barclay, the uh, 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 passed away now uh, commentator of the Bible, says this. He said, the Greeks were intox- intoxicated with fine words. They loved rhetoric. They loved rhetoric. Uh, to them, the Christian message, as well as the messenger, was crude and uncultured. We don't really like the message or the messenger. First Corinthians one verses twenty-two and twenty-three. Jesus, excuse me, Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Greeks look for wisdom. Foolishness to the Gentiles is what they heard when they heard the gospel. So we don't want any part of that. And and today is not much different. We live in a culture that says, just make me laugh and I'll believe anything you say. There was a study a few years ago during one of the presidential campaigns and and it showed that 21% of the people at that point ages 29 to uh, 20 to 29 cited as their primary news sources the daily show on Comedy Central and Saturday Night Live. That's where they got their news. Tell me a joke, make me laugh, and then I'll believe whatever you say after that. That was the culture. It still is the culture, pretty much, of our world. We may not listen to comedians who are telling us this, but we listen to millionaire celebrities who are news journalists, and we buy everything they say hook, line, and sinker. And that's a problem. 
It's a challenge that we have because there are so many ways in today's world that you can get news around the clock. And never before uh, have we had so much choice in news and reports and, and the way it's, it's reported. And so what do we do? We say, I like this person. I like the way they present the news. I like the way they dress. I like the way they talk. I like whatever it is about them. And I, and I pick them. I don't listen to anybody else. And that's the way we do news today. We're no different than the Greeks were. If you tell me I have to believe God and believe his word, and it makes me feel kind of uncomfortable, then I'm just going to say, that's a foolish thing. I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with it. I'll just find somebody that tells me something that I like. And that I don't feel foolish about. In our quest for truth and wisdom, let's not mix up and confuse packaging for the product. Let's not confuse the advertisement for the reality. And let's not confuse the entertainment for real life wisdom. Because that's when we get in trouble. There's a big difference between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. You know what it is? It's one word. The difference is the word power. That's the difference. The world's wisdom has no power. God's wisdom has it. God's wisdom has power. Look at verse 18 again here in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is power. Same commentator, William Barclay, said this. He said the gospel was and is power. Power is to conquer self, power to master circumstances, power to go on living when life is unlivable, power to be a Christian when being a Christian looks impossible. That's the power of the cross. That's the message of the cross. That is God's wisdom. That's where salvation resides, in the power of God's wisdom in the power of the cross. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you will know the truth, remember, and the truth will do what? Make you free or set you free. What does that mean? You'll be free from the past. Where else are you going to find freedom from your past? Nothing the world offers will do that. You'll be free from sin. Where are you going to find that? World's wisdom only gives you more sin. You'll be free from yourself. All of the self-help books in all the barns and nobles of the world can't get you that. Only the gospel will do that. And you'll be free from your old nature. 
that wiggly part of sin that tries to drive us down and keep us from God cannot keep us from progressing through our righteousness-building sanctification process and go with us into eternity. It can't keep us from doing that. Truth has a way of changing those who embrace it. God's uh, God's truth itself never changes. It's always the same. But if you let it, it will change you from the inside out. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in you there is truth that we can only find in Jesus Christ. So, Father, now we pray that our lives will be changed. That as we go through that transforming power of the Spirit working in our lives, that not only we will notice it, but people around us will notice it as well. I pray for that one, or for those individuals who are here or listening to us today, who are on the fence about putting their faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him to be Savior and Lord of their lives, confessing their sin, asking for forgiveness. Father, we pray that they would put you to the test today, that they would put your truth to the test. Let them see the transforming power that will come out of that in their own lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we stand together to sing, if God's speaking to you today and you want to make that decision, or maybe you just did, or maybe somewhere in the sermon you did, won't you come and let us know? Let us pray with you as you make that decision. If you're online, you can contact us this week here in the office. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us today for Faith Point. Reach us online at firstsouthernpv.org or stop by to worship with us if you are in the Prescott Valley area. May God richly bless you today as you allow your faith to intersect with your life.